Welcome to A Year of Crime, which is reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee. Our crime news comes from the Milan Exchange and the Memphis Appeal for the 13th of March, 1886. Please be aware that some articles published in 1886 used language that we find offensive today. It was my decision to report the articles as written during that time, in the belief that we must tell the truth about our history. Our first set of articles are from the Milan Exchange. For Sheriff Parr, we are authorized to announce T.J. Parr as a candidate for re-election to the office of sheriff at the ensuing election. For Circuit Judge Estes, we are authorized to announce Honorable A.C. Estes of Haywood County as a candidate for judge of the 12th Judicial Circuit. Composed of the counties of Benton, Carroll, Crockett, Gibson, Haywood, Henry, O'Brien, and Weekly. Swigert, we are authorized to announce Honorable W.H. Swigert of Union City as a candidate for judge of the 12th Judicial Circuit. Composed of counties of Benton, Carroll, Crockett, Gibson, Henry, Haywood, O'Brien, and Weekly. For Attorney General, Bond, we are authorized to announce Honorable John R. Bond of Haywood County as a candidate for Attorney General of this, the 12th Judicial Circuit, composed of the counties of Benton, Carroll, Crockett, Gibson, Haywood, Henry, O'Brien, and Weekly. Tyree, we are authorized to announce Honorable L. H. Tyree of Gibson County as a candidate for Attorney General of the 12th Judicial Circuit, composed of the counties of Benton, Carroll, Crockett, Gibson, Haywood, Henry, O'Brien, and Weekly. Our popular and very efficient sheriff, Mr. T.J. Parr, is announced this week in our columns as a candidate for re-election. The exchange takes great pleasure in saying that he and his excellent deputies, so far as we know, have filled all their duties satisfactorily and promptly, and that he has been one of the best sheriffs Gibson County has ever had. He is always pleasant, polite, and ready for duty. And he would get, when he gets his hands on a prisoner, he is as good as in jail. Marshall Lusk has posted notices at the passenger depot warning loafers not to stay in the sitting room or on the platform under penalty of arrest and fine. The next section of the paper is titled Topics of the Day, News from Everywhere. A cable dispatch from the Chinese government to their minister of Washington makes vigorous protest against the treatment of the Chinese in the West. The Prussian government has ordered the Polish poet Krasowitz to return to prison on May 1st. The poet says that his return will soon be followed by his death, as he is now in feeble health. Holland, the Texan who killed Tom Davis, the boodle swindler in New York, was considerably lionized after his acquittal of the charge of murder. It is said, however, that some of Davis's friends had sworn to kill him before he could leave the city. The Madrid correspondent of the London Times says that before the death of King Alfonso, the Carlist offered a reward of $100,000 for his head, and that when a man volunteered to assassinate the king, the Carlist backed out of their proposition. Personal and general, Frank Cock, station agent at Scott Station, Alabama, was brutally murdered on the 5th by unknown parties. John Barrington, an insane patient at the Allegheny City, Pennsylvania home, jumped from a third-story window on the 5th and was killed. A crank created consternation on the Paris Bourse on the 5th by firing a revolver and throwing a bottle containing an explosive on the floor, at the same time shouting, Viva l'anarchy! Jesse Billings, a prominent farmer near Washington, Indiana, was convicted on the 5th of forgery and will go to state's prison for two years. 
Queen Regent Christiana of Spain has pardoned the Duke of Seville, who was recently imprisoned for insulting her. During the trial on the 5th of John S. Dider, Jr., partner of the firm of Elkersdorf and Company for forgery in Montreal, Canada, Colonel Dider, the father of the accused, fell dead in the witness box. Poundmaker and 11 other braves were liberated from the penitentiary at Stony Mountain, Northwestern Territory, on the 4th. They have gone west to their homes in charge of Father Lancome. The lighthouse on Sand Point, Escambia, Michigan, was destroyed by fire on the 5th. Mrs. Mary G. Terry, lightkeeper, perished in the flames. The fire is supposed to have caught from the furnace. Robbery is suggested as Mrs. Terry was a woman of means and lived alone. About 3 o'clock on the morning of the 5th, 125 Chinese at work as woodchoppers and grubbers near Mount Tabor, three miles east of Portland, Oregon, were driven out by a mob of six, between 60 and 80 whites, most of them masked, and marched to the ferry whence they were conveyed to Portland. Clarence Gray, alias Ishmael Collins, was executed in Nevada on the 5th for the murder of R.H. Scott at Paradise on Christmas evening, 1884. In a revenue raid in Putman, Overton, Jackson, and Pickett counties, 35 moonshiners were arrested and 24 distilleries destroyed. Our Republican friends in the Mountain District will go dry next summer, we fear. The Chinese government is getting its back up because of the recent outrages on Chinese citizens in the West and demands indemnity and protection. And the Chinese government is right, so long as we have a treaty with them. Let us live squarely up to it. We believe the Chinese of the Pacific Coast are better men than many of their persecutors, and that's not saying much for them. Trinidad Alvarez was killed, and Senor Paredes was fatally wounded in a duel at Mexico on the 7th. A mass meeting of Mormon women assembled at Salt Lake City on the 7th to protest against federal interference with polygamy. The Cuban bandit Juan Gonzalez Cristobal Diaz, with several aliases, was killed on the 6th by the Civil Guard stationed at Maher. Abes Malagu Caseponce was murdered by a band of ruffians at Prepagan, France, on the 7th, while dining in the hospital of the Sisters of the Poor. Four persons are reported to have been killed by a band of Indians supposed to belong to Geronimo's band near Mexico. Johnson, the Negro, was convicted of murder in the first degree at Chester, Pennsylvania on the 6th for the murder of the old man Sharpless. Fifty Sioux Indian girls have recently entered the Wabash, Indiana school. The condition of the convict farm in Tallapoosa County, Alabama is said to be frightful and the treatment of convicts most barbarous. The parties involved will be prosecuted. Perenaire, who fired a revolver in the French chamber a few days ago, has been sent to a madhouse. It is said that counterfeit $2.50 and $5 gold pieces are circulating in Dyer County. Look out for them. Yancey Coleman, colored, was accidentally killed by Jefferson McLean, colored, and newborn last Saturday while handling a pistol. Major Frank Jones, aged 60 years, committed suicide at Tibbs, 12 miles north of Brownsville, by taking 20 grains of morphine. Ben Brown, colored, last week tried in Nashville for the murder of Frank Arnold, colored, and found guilty of murder in the first degree. Jackson Wig, J.J. Worrell, editor of The Dispatch, 
who with his family and Mrs. Sally, Sally Taylor are in New Orleans, was robbed Wednesday night of cash and other valuables amounting to about $300 in that city while getting off a streetcar at midnight. Obayan Democrat Samuel Bratton, our city marshal, while returning from a visit in the country on horseback last Saturday night, was ordered to halt by two unknown men on the bridge near the fairground. He asked them what they wanted and rode his horse towards them. They ordered him to halt again. He then drew his pistol and fired on them. They returned the fire and then ran away. Neither of the shots fired took effect. Sam says it was a close place, but if he had gotten a fair show, someone would have been hurt. From the Jackson Whig. The barn contained, containing about 35 barrels of corn of William Thorne near Juneau in Henderson County was burned by an incendiary last Saturday night. Mr. Thorne was one of the leaders in obtaining the charter of the Sand Ridge Schoolhouse, which was recently burned down, and it is supposed the same incendiary did the burning of Saturday night. A Nashville dispatch of the 7th says, Everett Smith, a compositor employed on the Daily Union, suicided by shooting at 10 o'clock this morning. Smith, who was 25 years old and unmarried, was from Smithville to Cab County. He was elected financial secretary of Topographical Union Number 20 three months ago and is said to have been behind in his accounts $80, having spent the money while intoxicated. He had to make his quarterly report to the union today and being unable to effect a settlement, he determined to take his own life. Proceeding to Spring Park, he seated himself on a bench and sent a bullet into his right breast. He fell lifeless, his corpse being found an hour later. He left a note stating that whiskey and bad company was the cause of his tragic end. If reports be true, a Brooklyn girl, only 14 years old, was taken from school and made the wife of a coal heaver old enough to be her grandfather. This is said to have been done by authority of the parents against the will of the victim, and the marriage ceremony was performed by a minister of the gospel. If our marriage laws were not loose and worthless as they are, an outrage of this kind would subject the man, parents, and minister to criminal penalties. That was from the New York Herald. The remainder of our news articles are from the Memphis Appeal. Birmingham, Alabama, on trial for the murder of his brother, deliberate suicide, special to the appeal. Birmingham, Alabama, March 12th. The city court today took up the trial of Lafayette, Cham Lafayette Chambers charged with shooting and killing his brother in the woods up in the northwest part of this county about 14 months ago. About half of the state's witnesses were examined. The testimony is entirely circumstantial. The strongest points against the prisoner are that the tracks at the scene of the killing seemed to be his and that on a tree nearby which had been hacked with an axe were marks of gaps corresponding with his axe. John Wilson, a young pattern maker at the Wilson Works, sent his wife out of the room this morning and, standing in front of the mirror, placed the muzzle of a pistol in his mouth and fired. He fell backward, almost instantly killed. A ghastly spectacle. Execution of Ford and Murphy at New Orleans. The men hanged while in a dying condition from poison taken with suicidal intent. Special to the appeal. New Orleans, Louisiana, March 12th. Ford and Murphy were hanged here today for the murder of Cap Murphy under circumstances which will make the execution a memorable one in the history of crime. When the keepers entered the cells of the doomed men this morning shortly after 7 o'clock to arouse them, it was found that they could not wake them up. An alarm was at once given and physicians summoned when it was discovered that they had attempted suicide by taking poison and were in a comatose state, breathing heavily and apparently in a dying condition. 
Efforts to resuscitate the men were at once commenced, and between 9 and 10 o'clock, Murphy slightly rallied, but soon relapsed into unconsciousness. Ford remained insensible up to the time of the execution. In the meantime, Sheriff Butler had telegraphed the governor, stating the facts in the case and asking for instructions in case the men could not be restored to consciousness before the hour fixed for the execution. The governor telegraphed back, quote, to go on with the executions and carry out the warrants, unquote. Preparations for carrying out the sentence of the law were completed, and at 12.30 o'clock, Sheriff Butler, accompanied by several subordinate officials, proceeded to the cell of the condemned where the bodies of the doomed men lay, still apparently lifeless, under the physician's care. The forms were carefully lifted from the recumbent positions and borne in the arms of the agitated deputies to the scaffold. Amid profound silence, the ghastly bodies were carried up the steps to the plank of the horrible platform and held in erect position while the fatal nooses were drawn over and around their necks. No signs of life were observed in either man when the last sad rites had been performed, and when the trap was sprung by an unseen hand and the bodies were launched into eternity, a hush fell upon the little group of unwilling spectators. The trap was sprung at 12.51 o'clock p.m. The murderers of Cap Murphy had paid the penalty for their crime with their lives. Associated Press Report, New Orleans, March 12. Ford and Murphy were hanged at 12.51 today. At 12.30 a.m., service was held in the chapel by members of St. Vincent de Paul Society. At 2 o'clock, the men became unusually calm, so much so that they seemed hardly to realize the fact that a fearful doom was waiting them. At 2.30 a.m., Ford said he was tired, and he and Murphy went to their cells, accompanied by deputy sheriffs and reporters. They entered the cells, bade all good night, and were left alone. The men appeared to be sleeping soundly at 7.20 a.m. when efforts to rouse them revealed their condition. They were lying on their backs. Ford was breathing very loudly, while Murphy appeared to be sleeping calmly. Efforts to arouse Ford were unavailing, but Murphy was aroused, and when asked how he felt, replied, Very bad. A tremor passed over him, and he again sank into unconsciousness. Two pieces of paper were found in the cell, which had evidently contained belladonna. In view of the fact that the men had attempted suicide, the Reverend Father O'Callaghan, in accordance with the rules of the Catholic Church, refused to administer the last sacrament to them. The preparations for the hanging began at 12.03 p.m. when the yard and quarters were cleared of prisoners. Both men were lying in their cots. Murphy was in the same semi-conscious state, and although his eyes wandered in all directions, he could not understand what was going on. Only once did he return to his senses, and then he held out his hand to Ford and endeavored to shake hands with him. This was only for an instant, for once more he lost consciousness, notwithstanding the fact that the emetics administered to him caused him to vomit the poison, which was of a greenish hue. At 12.35, the arms and legs of the men were pinioned while they were still in a recumbent position. Six witnesses were sworn in by Sheriff Butler, and the death warrant was read to the senseless men. They were carried to the scaffold at 12.45 o'clock p.m. Finding that the men were unable to sit in their chairs, the ropes were lengthened somewhat in order to reach them as they lay in a half-recumbent position on the gallows. The rain last night caused the ropes to stretch so that when the drop fell, Murphy's feet touched the pavement and Ford's feet almost touched it. It only took a few minutes for the executioner, robed in his black domino and wire mask, to adjust the rope and black cap before he returned to his cell, followed almost instantly by a sharp swiss of the axe as it cut the rope. Then the bodies of John Murphy and Pat Ford shot through the sit to come up with a sudden jerk. 
The drop was about eight feet. The bodies were allowed to hang 25 minutes and were cut down at 1.15 p.m. The same jury which witnessed the hanging viewed the bodies, and Assistant Coroner Jones gave a verdict of death by hanging, which dislocated the neck of both men. The bodies will be taken charge of by Ford's family. Sheriff Butler, in an interview, stated that he had taken every precaution to avoid what had happened. He had taken precautions not only against the emission of poison, but also against any attempt at rescue. When the last death warrant was received, he did, without giving the condemned any reason for the act, removed everything from their cell. This was done for fear that poison or some other means of taking life might be secreted there. He also refused to allow, allow any cigars or other luxuries to be sent to them by persons outside. He said a rigorous investigation would be made as to how the poison was conveyed to the men. The story of the crime. No crime has aroused more popular excitement and been more productive of important results than that for which these two men were hanged today. It invaded the politics of the state, and the next campaign promises to be conducted on this issue. It, is, it invaded even domestic life and produced quarrels and bitters, bitterness in families. The legislature, which meets next month, promises to abolish the death penalty, and the hanging today will probably be the last legal execution in Louisiana. The excitement over the case has not been confined to Louisiana. Nearly every paper in the country has commented on it. The case has been regarded as a sort of test of American institutions of the possibility of executing the law in defiance of political influence, power, and money. The high position of the accused men in this case, the boldness and audacity of the crime they committed, and the social, political, and financial influences brought to bear to prevent justice being done made the trial a duel between public opinion on the one side and the defendant on the other. The fact that the prisoners were, with one exception, officers of the law, intensified the popular feeling that if they could, by boldness, audacity, and political influence, escape the penalty of the law, life was unsafe in New Orleans. It is one of the enormalities of the case that the men who committed the murder for which Ford and Murphy were hanged today and who arranged the conspiracy had escaped the death penalty. This man is Judge Thomas J. Ford, late recorder of the city of New Orleans and now serving a term in the penitentiary. Ford was one of the shrewdest, sharpest, and most daring of the city politicians. He worked himself rapidly to the front until he was boss of the Fourth Ward, its absolute political ruler. He always made his influence felt and was not a little feared by the other politicians. Elected recorder in 1880, he filled that office with great credit and in 1884 was re-elected by the largest majority on the Democratic ticket. He was filled with ambition and proclaimed his intention of being the next mayor of New Orleans, and there seemed little reason to doubt that he would succeed. There was one thorn in his path in the person of A.H. or Cap Murphy, also a politician. Murphy was a young Mississippian of good family, cousin to ex-Congressman E. John Ellis of this state. He had the reputation of being a man of great courage and determination, an amateur slugger, but not quarrelsome. Judge Ford and Murphy quarreled some four years ago over a woman. When Murphy came before Ford on a trivial offense, the latter denounced him from the bench as a hoodlum and gave him the extreme penalty of the law. Murphy replied with a challenge, and when the judge refused to accept it, posted him all over town as a coward and a thief declaring that Ford had been discharged by his employer for stealing from the till. till. For this, he was arrested on a charge of criminal libel. Up to the day of his death, Mur Murphy declared he had ample evidence to prove that Ford was a thief. He never offered it, for on the very day before the case came up for trial, he was murdered by a party of seven or eight men. 
The murder was the boldest and most outrageous ever committed here and in the presence of several hundred persons. Murphy, who was superintendent of the workhouse, was super, superintending a gang of 50 or 60 men cleaning out the Claiborne Canal. While seated at the corner of Claiborne and St. Anne Streets, two men suddenly turned the corner with drawn revolvers in their hands and opened fire on him. He ran to the middle of the street, drew his own pistol, and answered the fire. At the corner, two men were stationed who joined his assailants. Down Claiborne Street, he fled, his pursuers growing more murderous every moment, all firing at him until it sounded like a battle. On Dumaine Street, one of the bullets brought him down when two of his murderers walked up to him, rolled over his body with their feet, emptied the remaining barrels of the revolvers into him, and walked off as suddenly and as mysteriously as they had come. The murder and the fact that the assassins were unknown sent a thrill of horror through the community. When, however, Judge Thomas Ford, recorder, his brother, Pat Ford, his cousin, Officer John Murphy, and Officers Buckley, Caulfield, Fayetto, and Baders, all members of the court and guardians of the peace, were arrested for this crime, the press and people were more than ever indignant at the discovery of the character of the men to whom the peace of the city was confided. The time was one of the most exciting in this country. The district attorney owed his office to Ford's influence, and so did many of the deputy sheriffs and other court officers. The trial showed the people in New Orleans that criminal justice in their city was a farce. There was never so much bribery and perjury in one case as here. Witness after witness proved alibis for the judge and that the dead man had attacked Pat Ford, and even the state's witnesses sold their testimony. The jury room was a complete farce. The Ford's had got their man, men on the jury and their deputy sheriffs to watch it, and the jurors were heavily were offered heavy sums for an acquittal. In fine, the case reeked with corruption, and it was by the merest accident that even a mistrial could be secured. Five of Fort's witnesses were arrested for perjury, seven of whom have since been tried and sent to the penitentiary, and one deputy sheriff and two jurors indicted for bribery. The case was reopened again, the jury watched, and an eye kept on the case. The Fords had spent nearly all their money in the first trial and were ill-prepared for the second. To the surprise of many, the jury brought in a verdict of guilty, sentencing two of the men to death, Pat Ford and John Murphy, and the other three, Judge Ford, Caulfield, and Buckley, to 20 years in the penitentiary. The Fords did not abandon hope. They tried the Supreme Court, but it refused them relief. They tried the Board of Pardons, which declined to recommend their pardon, and they were condemned to be hanged Friday, November the 13th, 1885. They begged pitilessly for a reprieve to allow them to prepare for death, and the governor granted one to December the 18th, just the day before they were to be hanged. Before the second date of the hanging had come around, a new aspect was given the case by the confession of Tom Ford. He had proved an alibi on trial, but as he had engineered and arranged the conspiracy, he was found guilty of the lesser crime of manslaughter. What, then, was the surprise of all to hear from his own confession that the alibi was false? and that he personally had killed Cap Murphy and not his brother Pat, who was to be hung for the crime. Although generally credited, the confession failed to affect his purpose of saving the brother, since it was shown that he was also one of the conspirators and one of the assailants of the murdered man. The confession was submitted to the Board of Pardons, which again unanimously refused to recommend a pardon. On December the 17th, one day before the hanging, Governor McEnany granted a second reprieve in order to test the public sentiment on the matter of the hanging. Petitions asking 
for a mutation of the death penalty to imprisonment for life were circulated, which in a few weeks received the signature of 30,000 persons, including the governor of Mississippi, members of the Supreme Court of Mississippi and California, the mayor of San Francisco, United States judges, and other influential citizens. The Board of Pardons met again in February, and all these petitions were presented and speeches made. One of the members of the board changed his vote in deference to his expiration of public opinion. The other two, the majority, stood firm and the pardon was refused. The last appeal made in behalf of the condemned men was a request signed by 42 members of the state legislature asking the governor to postpone the hanging for a month until the legislature met and pledging themselves, if he did so, to vote in favor of the abolition of capital punishment. This offer the governor declined, and with his refusal, the efforts of the friends of the condemned men to escape the death penalty ended. Pat Ford was 36 years of age and leaves a wife and six children in poverty, all his money going in the defense. His wife was offered the $1,000 for his capture, but refused to take that blood money. He was engaged in commercial business and before the murder enjoyed an excellent reputation. Murphy was 24 years of age and single. The content of the case has had a most beneficial and purifying effect here and has worked a revolution in criminal justice. No guilty man has escaped punishment since, and a feeling of security has been restored. Springfield, Missouri. Mrs. Malloy and Cora Lee on trial for murder. Great interest manifested in the case. Examination of witnesses. First day's proceedings. Special to the appeal. Springfield, Missouri, March 12th. Mrs. Malloy and Cora Lee were arraigned this morning before Justice Savage for preliminary examination, Justice Roundtree acting as associate. Over 2,000 were in the courtroom, one-fourth ladies. The crush was so great that it was with difficulty witnesses could pass through the mass of humanity packed like sardines in a box. Both sides announced themselves ready for trial. Thirty-five witnesses were sworn for the state. It was impossible for the sheriff to maintain order, and the court adjourned to 1.30 p.m., and instructed the sheriff to summon 25 men to keep order. The trial will last probably several days. The state is represented by Jonathan, Jonathan W. Patterson and prosecuting attorney W.D. Hubbard. The defense by A.H. Howell, W.P. Camp, Rathburn Travers, and Rathbun. In the afternoon, T.J. Delaney, attorney for Graham, asked that his clients be given a hearing with Mrs. Malloy and Cora Lee, which was refused after argument between the state and Delaney. Isaac Heiss, the first witness, testified as at the inquest that he went down in the well and found the body of Sarah Graham badly decomposed and nude. The body was taken up in a blanket to keep the remains from falling to pieces. The progress of the examination was slow. Joseph Studley and Henry Fellows told the same story as Rice. The last witness examined was Officer Dodson, who testified that he had been at the farm in February before the finding of the body. Mr. Breeze asked if he could talk to Charlie in my presence. Cora said she would rather he not. She wanted to be present and made an evasive answer. When asked what she thought of the case of the missing woman, she said Mrs. Mr. Breeze said some thought the body was on the farm, but she thought nothing of the kind. He went to the farm yesterday and found other garments, among which was a knit shirt cut up and scattered in the pasture between the house and well. He saw an old buggy tracks between the house and well. The court adjourned to 9.30 o'clock tomorrow morning. The Chinese Problem Memorial adopted by the Sacramento Convention San Francisco, California, March 12th 
The Sacramento State Anti-Chinese Convention, now in session, adopted the following resolution. Quote, that no man now directly employing or patronizing Chinese be placed on the Committee on Resolutions, unquote. The stringency of the resolution nearly created difficulty as owing to the absence of white labor, all employers in California have been dependent on Chinese labor. The good sense of the chairman prevented trouble, and all members of the committee, representing the best and most influential interests of the Pacific Coast, were accepted. A committee was appointed to prepare a memorial to Congress setting forth the evils which the entire Pacific Coast suffer from Chinese labor. The memorial was presented last evening. It is a long document, embracing about 10,000 words, and is a review of the whole Chinese question from its earliest incipiency to the recent present, present moment. After the adoption of the memorial, two resolutions were offered and referred. They opposed violence, advocated an uncompromising boycott, requested the appointment of a committee to solicit subscriptions to hire ships to deport Chinese, requested all congressmen to discharge Chinese, demanded that the Chinese be cut off from all privileges enjoyed by citizens, requested Congress to abrogate the Hawaiian Treaty, and demanded the removal of the Chinese six companies. Several other resolutions of a similar tenor were offered, all of which were referred. Later, the discussion over the boycott clause and the platform presented to the anti-Chinese convention continued up to one o'clock, when, amid tremendous cheering, the platform as presented was adopted. Ex-Senator Sargent, who had strongly opposed the boycott, boycott clause, immediately informed the chairman of his withdrawal from the convention. The session opened at 11 o'clock this morning. A note to listeners, in the early part of 1886, in these newspapers that I've been reviewing, I've noticed that there were a lot of labor strikes, specifically in railroads and in mining. Most articles about the strikes do not include criminal acts. However, this next article is an exception. The Situation at Little Rock, Little Rock, Arkansas, March 12th. At 10.30 o'clock, a freight train drawn by a switch engine left the Iron Mountain Depot and reached Benton, 25 miles south, at noon. The passenger engine, which was to take the St. Louis train south, was captured at the roundhouse by the massed strikers and sent after the freight train. The freight train was overtaken at Benton and disabled when the strikers started back toward Little Rock with the passenger engine. In Mabelville, 10 miles south of the city, they waited on a sidetrack for the passenger train to go by. The train came along, and when the last car had passed, they threw the switch open and dashed out in the direction of Little Rock. United States Marshal Fletcher and several deputies were on the passenger train, accompanied by Superintendent Whedon. The track was cleared for the switch engine. The officers got aboard and pursued the strikers, both reaching and dashing past the depot under full headway. While crossing the bridge, the pursuing engine caught and made fast to the striker's engine, and the officers began climbing aboard, ordering the strikers to stop. They refused, and on reaching the north side of the bridge, several strikers jumped off, and the officers began firing. About 57 shots were fired, and one striker, named Sullivan, was shot in the leg severely and was captured. Seven others besides Sullivan were captured. Officers are in pursuit of the fugitives, about 18 in number. The captured strikers were released on bond, and tonight everything is quiet, although considerable excitement prevails. Pine Bluff, Arkansas, an editor on a big spree, a rather serious affair, special to the appeal. Pine Bluff, Arkansas, March 12th. Night before last, at 11 o'clock, S.C. Treadwell, editor of the Kingsland Keeper, strikes being in order, made a physical, literal strike, not at the Gould system, but the office fixtures of the depot at Reason, on the Texas and St. Louis Road. 
He also smashed window panes into fragments and demolished things around generally. Miss Maddie Stewart, a modest young lady in charge of the telegraph office, fled precipitously from the building, frightened out of her wits. Treadwell got hold of some tangle-leg whiskey at the village, and to this he ascribes his troubles, which he and his friends regret. He was before United States Commissioner F.J. Wise today, charged with trespassing on the property of the Texas and St. Louis Railroad, which, being in the hands of Receiver Fortis, appointed by the United States Court, the offense, if established, will be regarded as contempt of the federal court, to which he was bound over by the commissioner to appear on a bond of $500. Socialists Dispersed Amsterdam, March 12th. The police this afternoon charged with swords and truncheons upon a large crowd of socialists who had assembled in a menacing way in the aristocratic quarter of the city and dispersed them. A deputation of socialists waited upon the mayor today and urged him to begin the construction of public works in order to afford employment to working men now idle. The mayor refused to recognize the representative character of the deputation. He said the municipal authorities were taking initiatory steps toward relieving these dis those distressed, and he declined to undertake the construction of useless works. He advised the deputation to abstain from calling meetings and declared that the authorities were determined to maintain order. Fined for giving Sunday performances, Cincinnati, Ohio, March 12th. Nat C. Goodwin, who was indicted for appearing in a theatrical performance on Sunday, entered a plea of guilty today before Judge Huston and was fined $10 in cost, the latter amounting to $10. In the police court, the cases of Miss Lillian Lewis, Sadie Hayson, Hattie Pike, J.J. Dowling, Max Arnold, charged with taking part in theatrical performances last Sunday, were called. They all pleaded guilty, and the judge fined each $10 and cost. He took occasion to arraign Mayor Smith for not exercising his power to close concert saloons on Sunday. Rapid increase of patients at the asylum. The building taxed to its fullest capacity, removing lunatics, the workhouse. The demand for admission to the poorhouse is becoming formidable, said Chairman Wellborn of the Board of Commissioners yesterday. We now have about 230 inmates, an increase of more than 100 since the new building was opened about three years ago. If I had granted permits in all cases this winter, I mean that of real destitution only, the number would have been perhaps 50 more than it is. Dr. Duncan told me yesterday that he positively could not receive any more old men. The quarter allotted to them is already overcrowded. It seems to me that the friends and relations of all the antediluvians in the county are deserting them. They go to the poorhouse to die. There are a number at the institution who could and would be discharged except for the weather. They would die from hunger and exposure if turned out now. But the spring will soon open up and the number of inmates will decrease very rapidly. We will be relieved to a slight extent soon by the opening of the East Tennessee Insane Asylum. Shelby County is entitled to send 22 inmates to the asylum at Nashville, but there has been no vacancy for a long time. Some room is made by the opening of the new asylum, and we will send nine in a few days. We have about 80 now, including epileptics. Only the more violent and obstinate subjects will be sent. Is there an increase at the workhouse as well? Indeed there is. The number has increased to 62 from 36 at Christmas. The expense of keeping them has been cut down considerably, and they will do a great deal of work on the county roads this spring and summer. The almshouse, asylum, and workhouse questions are rapidly assuming a formidable shape in Shelby County due to the growth of the county seat, 
of course, the tide of wealth, commerce, and population, which pours in, bringing with it the usual scum. When a few progressive members of the court, with Justice Coleman at their head, first began the movement in favor of building a new asylum of increased capacity, they encountered the most violent opposition from the old fogey members who thought it would be half a century before the county would need to provide accommodations for 200 poor and insane, and who objected to a $30,000 building because they lived in hovels. Regarding the removal of East Tennessee's insane to a new asylum in Knoxville, of which mention is made above, the Chattanooga Times says... Dr. C.C. Fite, Assistant Superintendent of the East Tennessee Insane Asylum, was in the city last night en route to Nashville where he goes to arrange for the transfer of the East Tennessee Insane to the new asylum. He states that the removal will take place next week, but just what day is not known. The 99 patients will be placed in two coaches in charge of keepers and guards. The train will leave Nashville about 7 o'clock a.m. and will not stop except for water until Chattanooga is reached. Here, the engines will be changed and the train will proceed to Knoxville, arriving there about 5 o'clock p.m. No one will be allowed to enter the coaches after the train leaves Nashville, and the authorities anticipate no trouble in making the transfer. No other patients will be received at the asylum until it is entirely completed, which will be about April the 1st. The Payne Investigation, Toledo, Ohio, March 12th. The Payne Investigating Committee is in session here today and have before them ex-State Senator White of Defiance, who, it is charged, paid off certain mortgages shortly after Payne's election as United States Senator and is supposed he can tell an interesting story if he will. The committee act with great secrecy and the nature of his testimony has not transpired. That's all the crime news for the 13th of March, 1886. Please join me again for another episode of A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee.